Please turn with me in your Bibles to our text this morning. We're going to be finishing up Galatians chapter 3, looking at verses 28 and 29 this morning. So Galatians chapter 3 and verses 28 and 29. Galatians chapter 3, verses 28 and 29. Please then hear with me the reading of God's Word. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Thus far is a reading of God's Word. Uh, One of the greatest exegetical fallacies being committed today is what we might call context replacement. Context replacement. And what this fallacy tends to do is is change what's being said by changing the context. Right? If you wanted to say something that, that you want, you have to give it another context to support your interpretation. Right? People do this all the time. And in fact, you don't have to be a, you know, a liberal theologian to do this as well. I think, you know, good conservative evangelical theologians as well do this very same thing. As they bring particular, you know, theological beliefs to a text. And so sometimes they might import or, or substitute a different context into the passage. Right? One that's not being addressed, one that's not being dealt with. Right? We call that though a biased interpretation, isn't it? Get the passage to say what, what I want it to say. Right? People do that all the time. And that's in fact exactly what we see going on in our text today. Right? Context replacement. Or maybe I should say this is what we see done in, in society with our text today. Right? More so. Right? Context replacement. Probably over the last 30 years or so. Right? We've really seen that. And in particular with, with verse 28. Right? Look at verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Right? This this verse has oftentimes been used as kind of a mantra or a a rallying cry for liberal theology, and an offshoot of that, really, right? Feminist theology to say that right here, all distinctions, all social distinctions, especially between right men and women, have been removed. People try to use verse. Uh, 28 to say, well, look here, Paul supports egalitarianism. Uh, but what we need to understand is that that is to commit that exegetical fallacy we were just talking about, right? Context replacement. Because here in our text, Paul is not giving us social commentary at all in this passage, right? He's not dealing with that in the, in the least. He's not seeking to do away with very real distinctions that existed in his day, many of which exist in our day, and some, that male-female distinction, which has existed since God created them male and female, right, at creation. Something that Paul later on in, a, in other letters, right, affirms, doesn't he? And so, to the contrary, what we need to see Paul doing in verses 28 and 29 is simply drawing a conclusion to what he's already been saying throughout this third chapter. And in this third chapter, the main issue that he's addressing is this. How does one become a child of Abraham? 
How does one become a child of Abraham? And that question is important because then it helps us to answer the other question, which follows up is, well then, how does one receive the inheritance? How does one receive the inheritance? And we're told that Abraham believed God. And so it was by faith, we're told, that Abraham received the inheritance. Right? It was by faith he received the promised blessings. Which means that to be a child of Abraham and to receive the blessings of Abraham, we too must believe. Right? We must believe as Abraham believed. And who did Abraham believe in? That you and I must believe in. Like Abraham. To receive the blessings of Abraham. Well, Paul tells us it's Christ Jesus. Now, the context of Paul's argument in chapter 3 is in reference to what? Really, the, the third promise of the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant, right? And the Mosaic law of the Mosaic covenant. And Paul tells us, uh, right, the promise came first that through Abraham and his seed that he would bless all the nations. And then 430 years later came the law, which served to protect that promise. Right, last week, as we looked at verses 23 to 27, right, Paul laid out how the law acted as guardian, right, to, to protect the promise, to get the people, the Israelites, ready for the coming of Christ so that they would be justified by faith in Christ. And he says, now that faith came, right, remember that doctrine to believe, to be believed, the, the guardian is no longer necessary. And Paul concluded now that that all Jew and Gentile alike become sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ. Right? He's saying that the law doesn't make sons, nor does the law grant to you inheritance. Right? That was never the law's purpose. That's not why it was given to you. Only faith does. And so Paul's point is that you Gentile converse, it's not necessary for you to become Jews first in order to to be right with God or to obtain the inheritance that has been promised. It is by faith and faith alone that we have put on Christ. It is by faith that you have been clothed in Him. It is by faith that we have been tightly joined together with Christ apart from the works of the law. And by faith then we receive all of those wondrous blessings right, that God has promised to all of His people just as He promised to Abraham. All of that, then, is what sets up right, the context for understanding verses 28 and 29. Right? That's In light of those things, that's how we understand now verse 28 and 29. And so with that, we're going to consider then our first point this morning. And so we'll call this first point, the distinctions removed. Right? The distinctions removed. Look at verse 28 again with me. There is neither Jew nor Greek neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. Now, Paul is saying something was removed, isn't he? Right? There's, there's something that has changed, Paul says. But what? What's Paul's point? Right? Well, prior to the coming of Christ, prior to His arrival, prior to making the Old Covenant obsolete and establishing the, the New Covenant, there were distinctions, weren't there, in the Old Covenant concerning privileges and blessings that one would get in that Old Covenant community. Right? The Mosaic Law and the ceremonies and its ordinances and its rites included things that, that differentiated people, made distinctions amongst them. 
The, the Jew was ceremonially clean. The, the Gentile or the Greek was unclean. Um, think about even that promised blessing of, of the land of Canaan. That was to the Jew, wasn't it? To the exclusion of the, the Greek or the, or the Gentile. Also, the Mosaic Law had, had distinctions between male and female, didn't it? The male was circumcised. The female wasn't. Uh, a woman who gave birth to a, male, to a male child was unclean for seven days. Think about even the inheritance. The inheritance went to the eldest son. It didn't go to a daughter. And so we see in the Mosaic Law there was distinctions between male, female, Jew, Gentile, or Jew, Greek. There was also distinctions made between slave and free. In Exodus 21.2, When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. So that what do we see that these, these distinctions, these, these groups, right? Jew, Greek, Male, female, slave, free, aren't addressing social life around them. That's not what Paul's addressing. Right? He's, he's not addressing categories distinguished by Greco-Roman law either. Right? Nor is he dealing with some maybe perceived limitations of the created order that he now wants to correct. But what is Paul dealing with? He's addressing specifically distinctions made by the Mosaic law. That's what he's dealing with in the passage. Right In Judaism, there were many distinctions. Distinctions mandated by God for a particular time, which were good for that time. But now that Christ has come, right now that Christ has established a new covenant, a better covenant, made on better promises, anyone who believes and enters into it, there is no distinction, let me qualify it, in the sense that none rises above the other with respect to what you inherit. Right? That's what Paul's saying. It's not as if the rich get one blessing, the poor get another. Right? It's not as if the, the, the Jewish convert gets a better blessing or a better inheritance than the, the Greek or the Gentile convert. It's not that men receive a, a, a better inheritance than women receive. But rather what Paul's saying is that all who receive Christ receive everything in Him. All that receive Christ receive everything in Him. There is no distinction in that. It's the same grace offered to everyone who believes. All alike who come to Christ are chosen, are called, are justified, are sanctified, are are glorified. All receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, don't they? As a guarantee of that inheritance that we await full possession of. And there are no qualifications other than faith and repentance. That means that the Gentile does not first have to become a Jew and, and circumcise his, his flesh to, to receive the inheritance. Right? Women don't have to worry about missing out on the inheritance because they're not men. Right? God redeems both men and women from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. Right? What Paul's trying to tell us is that God is not a respecter of persons in salvation. He's not a respecter of persons. He, he says, all who come to me, I will receive and not cast out. Right? There are no qualifications in that, but that you come believing. Right? That you come believing. And this is what should encourage us all, shouldn't it? Because there are many distinctions in this life, aren't there? Right? Many distinctions. Uh, there are 
even social class privileges, aren't there? Right? Some people get, other, others don't get. I mean, you think about, you know, LeBron James's kids are going to be able to do so many other things that my children and your children aren't going to be able to do. Right? That's just, that's just a fact of the matter. Um, but regardless of where or who your parents are, where you grew up, United States or a third world country, uh, regardless of what your occupation is, something that is highly esteemed or something that is lowly esteemed, right? Uh, whatever, whatever the case may be, whether rich or poor, right? Regardless of all those things, what Paul is saying is that we all have the same faith in Christ. And if we all have the same faith in Christ and we all belong to the same Christ, we also all have the same benefits and privileges in Christ, right? That are equal for all who are in Him. And so those distinctions, right? Male, female, Jew, Greek, slave, free. Paul's saying it has no bearing on who is a child of God. Right? Those, those categories have, have no bearing on, on kind of what portion of the inheritance you get. That's the point he's making. When God adopts you into His family, you all get the family name. Right? When God adopts us into His family, we all get the benefits and the privileges of the kingdom. Right? We all get the family riches. We all get the, the new nature of the family. It's not as if God holds back some of those benefits from one person and gives them to another. But rather, if you are a child of God, then you have all the privileges of sonship. Right? That's what Paul's saying. And that sonship is not something that can be bought or earned. It's not by physical birth that you inherit anything. It's not a sonship that can be purchased. Right? Just as you and I came into this world, not according to our own will, but by the will of another, in that first birth, the same is true of our second birth. Right? It is not by our own will that we are converted and that we receive this great gift and inheritance, but rather, brothers and sisters, it is by the will of another. Right? It is by the will of God who is the source of that spiritual life in us. And all this, every one of us gets on account of what Christ has done. And so Paul wants the saints to consider something as he's addressing these issues. And I think it's something that we all ought to consider as well as we sit here today. Because what's true of them is, is oftentimes true of us. And so what Paul's trying to get them to consider is this. What blessing promised is there that you think you can secure for yourself through submitting yourself to the law that you are not already in possession of. Right? That's what he's trying to tell them. He's saying, what blessing promise is there that you think you can secure yourself by obeying the law that you are not already put in possession of? Or that Christ is not already purchased and secured on your behalf? And the answer from all of us, if we are believers, ought to be simple, right? There ought to be None. For everyone who is in Christ is complete in Christ. There's nothing more for us to do, nothing more for us to, to add on top of what Christ has done. He is the linchpin of it all. But it is Christ who came down. It is Christ who came to, to break down all those obstacles, all those walls, all those dividers that the Mosaic Covenant put up so that we would no longer be two distinct peoples, but rather that we would be one people in Christ. This leads us to our second point then, which we'll call a union with Christ. Union with Christ. Uh, 
Paul says there's neither Jew nor Greek, male, female, slave, free. Why? With respect to our salvation? Well, that's what, what that word for is, is used here to indicate for us in, uh, at the end of verse 28. Right? For you are all one in Christ Jesus. So why do these distinctions no longer exist with respect to our salvation in God? For you are all one in Christ. Right? Paul says the, the reason that there is no difference between what a, a man gets and a woman gets with respect to our inheritance is because there's no difference in the Christ that we have. Right? We all have the same Christ. And so there is no difference in, in who gets what. Because we all have Him in the same way as well, don't we? We've all been united to Christ. We've been made one with Christ. That's what Paul spoke about last week in verse 27. When he said, For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. You've been dressed in Him already. You've been clothed in Him. And as a result, you are one body with Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, And because of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, Righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Everyone who believes has been put in possession of Christ's redemption through union with Christ. Right? You have what you have through union with Christ. And even though perhaps maybe not everyone loves the language, if we use the language of our Reformed forebears, right, they would call this a, a mystical union. It's a mystical union. I mean, it shouldn't be provocative language, sorry. Paul uses essentially the same language in Ephesians chapter 5. If you remember in Ephesians 5, Paul is talking about uh, the relationship between husband and wife, how that's analogous to, to Christ in the church. And he goes on to say how the, the husband loves his wife because someone wouldn't hate themselves, right? They wouldn't do harm to themselves. And he says in such way, that's the relationship between Christ and the church. And in verse 32... Paul then concludes this. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And so you ask, well, why is it a mystery? Or why do we call it a mystical union? Well, because where is Christ? Right? Christ is in heaven. We are on earth. How can we be said to be made one with Christ? How can Christ be in us and we in Christ? You see, when we think of union, we oftentimes think of of union with contact or in contact. That's not the kind of union that we have with Christ. So what kind of union do we have with Christ? Well, it's a, a spiritual union. Right? A union that occurs when the Spirit takes hold of us. So that that Spirit, right, in both Christ and us, is living and acting. Right? In Christ, it, it, is, it is living and acting in Him as head of the church. And in us, it is living and acting as His body. But in that way, we become right, one with Christ, having the Spirit of Christ in us. And the way that, or the vehicle that God uses to accomplish this union, since Christ cannot be seen with our eye nor touched with our hand while we are here on earth, right, that vehicle that He uses for union is faith. Then, right, Faith upon hearing the Word of God. Right? It's, it's when the Word of God is proclaimed that, that Christ offers Himself in all of salvation to the sinner. Right? It's in the Word as it's proclaimed 
that the Spirit accompanies it. Right? And, and, and drives it into the, the heart of the elect to, to raise that dead sinner to new life by implanting faith in Him. And it's a most intimate union, isn't it? The most intimate union that results. A, 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 a close union. The Scottish Presbyterian Thomas Boston, he said, we are joined as those things that are glued together. Right? Christ and His church. And even that doesn't really capture it, does it? As I read that quote, I was, I was thinking about Gorilla Glue for some reason. Right? Because Gorilla Glue, have you ever glued something together with that? It's almost impossible to tear those things apart, isn't it? And yet, your union to Christ is far more close and intimate than that. Right? This is why union is described in terms of, of head and body in, in the Bible. Of vine and branches. Of, of husband and wife. And this is an indissoluble union. Which is to say, it's, it's a union that can't be broken apart. Which means what? That, that once in Christ, once you belong to Christ... You are forever in Christ. Why? Well, because ultimately that Christ's love for you is the reason that you're there. And because the love of God for you never changes, right? That you can never be lost or separated from Christ again once united to Him. Right? This is why Paul said in our reading of the Gospel this morning, in Romans 8.35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And so see the importance of this doctrine, union with Christ. It is only through union that you are Christ. It is only through union that you receive the, the privileges of Christ. Right? Your justification, your adoption, your sanctification, your glorification. They are all yours because you have first been made one with Christ. And Christ has won all of these benefits. So whoever is in Christ receives them as well. Right? This is a doctrine, union with Christ. We have to hold most dear. Because as John Calvin wrote, as long as Christ remains outside of us and we separated from Him, all that He has suffered and all that He has done for salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for you and I. Therefore, to share with us what He has received from the Father, He had to become ours and dwell within us. This is what the saints in the churches of Galatia here needed to understand. That whoever is in Christ by faith receives all of Christ. That, that, That Christ communicates to the believer everything that is His through union. That what Christ has is ours when Christ becomes yours. Right? That's what union says. And there is nothing one must do but believe in Christ. Right? So if you are a Jew, Paul's saying don't look to the law. Look to Christ. Right? If you are a Gentile, right, don't look to the, to the law now in addition to Christ, thinking that you have to add it on, but rather just look to Christ. Male, female, look to Christ. Slave, free, look to Christ. Believe in Him and all the riches of His grace become yours. Just as they became Abraham's. As we're told here in verse 29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. This takes us to our third and our final point then. Heirs of promise. Heirs of promise. 
Paul says, if you belong to Christ, if you have been united to Christ by faith, only then are you Abraham's seed. Right? Only then does God count you as sons and daughters of Abraham. Right? Heirs according to the promise. He says that only believers are the true, legitimate children of Abraham. Why? Well, because Christ is the seed of Abraham, isn't He? And so if you are in Christ, who are you in? Abraham. Right? If Christ is the seed of Abraham and you are in Christ, you are Abraham's seed also. Right? Here is the main point of chapter 3 now being summarized at the end of chapter 3. We said the main point is, who are the children of Abraham? What do we read in verse 16 in chapter 3? Who is the really the one and true, legitimate son of Abraham? It's Christ. It is Christ who is the, the, the true son of, of Abraham. Therefore, he concludes that to, the only way to be a legitimate son of Abraham then is to belong to Christ. And this is important because then it tells us or, or it answers the question then of how does one receive that inheritance? And Paul concludes it's not by the law, but by faith in Christ that the inheritance becomes yours. Because only through faith do we become sons and daughters of God. And it is only as sons and daughters through faith that we become heirs to the promises as well. Look at Romans chapter 8 real quick with me. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, in verse 17. Romans chapter 8, let's start at 16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified in Him. What's an heir? Right? An heir is someone who has uh, the right to something. Right? Someone who has, has a person who is legally entitled to something. Well, by God's grace, He as a doctor has adopted strangers, brought them into His household, and shown them paternal favor. And also, in doing that, He changes our name and He gives us then the right to all of His paternal goods, doesn't He? Right? That we, we then share in love and grace and mercy and wisdom and, and power and, and things seen and things to come and heaven and glory. All these things, right, we receive as, as children of God. We, in, we inherit as, as heirs through faith in Christ. Right? It is, it is as Father. That he who has everything as his own offers it and gives it to his children. It's really wonderful to contemplate. If you stop and you think about that for a moment. None of us here, I'm sure, of of noble birth, are we? Uh, In the United States, none of us would be considered rich, would we? Uh, None of us here have, have much status in the eyes of the world. But when you become a child of God through faith in Christ, what you have, what you get is, is far greater than anything else that the, the wealthiest or most powerful person on the earth has. Right? You have Christ living in you. 
Right? You participate in and are recipients of heavenly things. You become heirs of all things. You have the grace of God working in your souls. You have eternal life. See how much more than you have. Right? Whoever considers himself here the weakest, the poorest among us all, consider how much more you have than the, the richest and the strongest person here on earth who does not have Christ. To put it in perspective, as one author says, I love this, when you breathe air, you're not breathing foreign air. When you look at the sun and it beating down upon you, warming your skin, you are not looking at a foreign sun for all is yours. Everything that exists, exists for us. Sun, moon, stars, sky, water. All of those things exist for us. Imagine that. Think about that. Right? As the world looks out at, at Christians today, they, they look at us and they, they say, well, it seems like Christians don't have much. It seems like they don't have much of anything. And yet God says that, that in Christ Jesus... We are possessors of everything. That's what Scripture tells us. Do you see then why Christ would say in the Gospels, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but to lose his soul? Because the richest, the most powerful, the most influential person in the world has nothing with all of their temporal goods that can compare to the, the riches and the eternal value of the things that have been given to the sons and the daughters of God. Right? The riches of this world will rot. They'll collect dust. Right? They'll fade away. They'll die. But the inheritance that we have is imperishable. It's unfading. And it's undefiled, kept by God Himself for us. Right? What God ultimately has made us heirs to is, is even something far better than even this earth, isn't it? Right? He's made us heirs to the, to the new heavens and the new earth. And so I pray that we see the excellency of the privileges that God gives over and above whatever privileges right, and benefits this world dangles before our eyes. For those in Christ and heirs of God, know this, that God cherishes you with a fatherly love. And you did nothing to deserve it. You did nothing to give it. Simply it was the will of God from all of eternity to to shower His everlasting love upon you. Right? Consider the love of God then. Marvel at God's love. Considering that God the Father already had a Son of His own. He didn't need you. He didn't need me. Consider who He adopted. Right? He, can, he adopted nothing beautiful, nothing attractive. In fact, we are ugly marred, deformed by sin, members of the devil's family himself. And yet God came and He plucked us out in order that He might make us something lovely, something wonderful, something beautiful in His sight by making us anew in the likeness of His Son. Right? It is God who has made us into a heavenly society through the proclamation of the Gospel. Right? He adopted us, brothers and sisters, because He had something to give Something that no earthly mother or father could give to us. That is an interest in all of God's promises. How does it not cause every single one of us here today to, 
to rejoice and to thank God for what He has done. How can we let a day go by without recognizing and praising God for His mercy? I think too often we're so concerned with what's going on here on earth with ourselves. We spend too much time complaining. Uh, Failing health. Why isn't our health better? Um, Don't like our job. Wish we had a a better job. Uh, Complaining about our finances. Uh, Wish we had more money. More of a a savings. Uh, Perhaps complaining about where we're living. We don't want to live where we are right now. I imagine if you're anything like me that over the past couple of days, that's what you've been thinking. Hey, I'd much rather be down south than be up here in the, in the north, in the in gloominess, in the snow. But brothers and sisters, we need to spend far less time right, worrying about those things and far more time extolling the mercy of God. Far more time extolling the mercy of God. Right? That, that He made slaves to sin His own sons and daughters. I mean, think about that. He took heirs of hell and He made them heirs of glory. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that wonderful? How could anyone not want to be a member of this family when your Father, God the Father, does this for His children? God, by making us sons and daughters, heirs according to the promise, gives us access to Himself. He allows us communion with the triune God. He gives us a spirit of adoption. Right? He, he gives us freedom from the law as a covenant of works. He gives us freedom from the tyranny of the devil. He gives us freedom from the dominion of sin. He gives us freedom from the second death. He provides protection and provision. He works out everything for our good. Even the evil that befalls us, we need to see a sanctified correction. Perhaps it's punishment for the wicked. But for the godly, it's nothing but benefit for us. And so the question is, are you a child of God? Or perhaps the better question is, how do I know I'm a child of God? Because there's a lot of people out there who call themselves children of God, wouldn't they? But they're not. The Judaizers would have called themselves children of God, but they weren't. So how can we know that I am a child of God? But one question we all ought to ask ourselves is, is do we enjoy the privileges and the benefits that in Christ Jesus you have been given? Because if you have the Spirit of Christ, you'll love those things that He has made yours. Because the Spirit of Christ is inside of you cultivating your enjoyment in those things. And so, do you desire communion with God? Ask yourselves this. It's a true mark of sonship. Do I desire communion with God? A good son loves to spend time with his father. A true child loves to be in his father's presence. They are happiest there. Is that the case with you? Do you love to be here in corporate worship where God says He communes with His people? Or your father speaks to you and you speak back to your father? Do you love to be here and be in prayer talking to your father? Do you love to hear your father's word proclaimed to you so that it might comfort and soothe your soul 
and strengthen you and give you courage and boldness? Do you love those things? Do you desire those things? If you do, that's a mark of, of true sonship. Also a mark of true, true sonship. Do you love the brotherhood? Do you love the brotherhood? You can't be a true child of God and hate your father's other children. And it can't be that way. And as your father is long-suffering with them because he loves them, are you. Remember, brothers and sisters, we all have spots on us, don't we? Maybe more than we'd like to share. Right, we all suffer from many imperfections, but we should still find one another beautiful because we bear the name of Christ. Right, we, should, we should find one another beautiful as we see the, the grace of God working in the lives of, of each other. Right, the reason that you love one another should not be based on whether I like someone's quirks or not. Right? The, the reason that we love someone should not be based on whether I can deal with their personality or not. Right? The reason that you and I are to love the brotherhood is because the Father loves them. And the Father sent His Son to die for them, to make them a child in the air, just as He has done for you. That's why you are to love them. That's a mark of true sonship. Another mark of true sonship, your willingness to do the Father's will. Obedience. A mark of true sonship. God calls us not to drink the sin of this world. Do you gulp it up? None of us will be perfect in following God's command. But the question is, do you love the law of God? Do you consent to the law of God? Do you know it's good? Do you desire to do it? Do you delight in doing it? Do you want to obey God's word? And when you come up short, when you fail, do you excuse it or try to justify it? Or do you look to the blood of Christ to, to cover it? And I want us to see all that this world is missing out on. Right? See the miserable condition of those who are not sons and daughters of the living God. But also, brothers and sisters, see what a privilege it is for you to be a son or daughter of God. Right, See the excellence of the state that you have been brought into and then don't go back to where you came from. Right, don't go back to the things that you were brought out from that the world now tries to tempt you with to, to draw you away from God. Remember that you have been consecrated by God. You have been set apart. You have been made holy. You have been consecrated as saints to God. Right, let's look, look at what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. He says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. God has saved you. He has adopted you. He has set you apart to be light in the midst of darkness. Right? He has given you liberty now in Christ. That liberty, though, is not to be used as a means for lawlessness or to delight in lawlessness. He has given you liberty and called us out of the world and adopted us and, and transferred us into the household of God right? through faith in Christ that we might now, while on earth and forever in glory, delight ourselves in the benefits of our salvation. 
Right? He has done these things that we might delight ourselves in all that we have been made heirs of. And first and foremost, He has done these things that you and I and every true child of God would delight ourselves first and foremost in Him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. It is encouraging. It is heartwarming. It is also correcting and convicting. And so, Lord, we pray that Your Word would do its work uh, in our hearts this day. Uh, that we would see uh, the areas in which we have fallen short. That we would see the areas in which we lack obedience, and in which we perhaps lack belief, in areas in which we are not looking to, to, to Christ and Christ crucified for all that we need. We pray, Lord, that You would encourage our hearts, that You would bring a solace to our souls to know that that Christ has won it all, that Christ has triumphed against our every enemy, and all that is Christ is ours. Right? That we might now take comfort in knowing that we are, are children of God. And as sons and daughters, um, we receive all that Christ has won for us. And so, Father, we thank You for those things. Those are benefits and privileges that we are unworthy of, but we thank You that You have loved us with an everlasting love and You set us apart that we might enjoy communion with You both now and forever. And we ask, Lord, that You would help us to, to think about those things this very day. And we ask all these things in Christ's name we pray. Amen.